Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, the book of Revelation, chapter 7, continued. We addressed the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 7 last time, and we will not quite conclude with that chapter today, even after reviewing it. Now, at the same time that we're going to review it, I'm going to add some more information about last week's topic before we move forward with uh, Revelation 7, starting with verse 9. Now, if we assume that the chapter order of Revelation as we find it in our Bibles is correct, then what we read in chapter 7 happens either coincidentally with or just after the sixth seal of of chapter 6 being opened. However, if we agree with the pre-tribulation dispensationalist viewpoint, now that's the view that's championed by most evangelical churches, then we have to conclude that chapters 6 and 7 are out of order. Reversed, actually. That is, chapter 7 should come before chapter 6. No ancient Greek manuscript of the New Testament has it that way. Which is why it's not that way in the Bibles you all hold in your hands. So there is no scriptural proof for this supposition. Rather, it is that in order for the pre-tribulation dispensationalist doctrine to work, chapters 6 and 7 must be reversed. There was no notion of this particular theological theory until early in the 19th century when Darby invented the pre-tribulation dispensationalist doctrine that's widely accepted today. The gist of the doctrine is that prior to an event called the tribulation, the rapture occurs that supernaturally whisks Christ believers away and into heaven before they can die as martyrs or perhaps suffer painful persecution. Now this doctrine was popularized in recent times in the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye. And one of the main problems with this doctrine is there is no such named event in the book of Revelation or anywhere else in the New Testament called the Tribulation. It was a term first coined by Darby. The other main problem is the one we just discussed. This doctrine only works if we reverse the chapter order of Revelation 6 and 7, which to me attacks the credibility of the book as it's been transmitted to us. So I would like to offer a different reason that I see is not only plausible but actually conforming to an established God pattern for why there is this interlude in the biblical text between the happenings of Revelation chapter 6 and chapters 8. 
That is, there's this pause between the opening of the sixth seal, which ends chapter 6, and the opening of the seventh seal, which begins chapter 8. And that pause or interlude is what we read in chapter 7. Now prior to God's wrath in Revelation beginning to be poured out on the entire planet that ends with global catastrophe, there was one other time the Yehovah determined to inflict his wrath on a destructive worldwide basis, the Great Flood. And if we go back to Genesis chapter 6 and 7, which you can do on your own, we find that there was an interlude. There was a pause in the biblical account after God announced his determination to destroy the world. During that interlude, we read about Noah's history and of his family. We read about how God gave Noah instructions to build an ark to survive that flood. And that Noah was also to rescue hundreds, hundreds of species of animals from extinction. Now it's interesting that we find that later authors of, of Jewish religious literature saw this same pattern and used it in the construction of the book of First Enoch, chapter 66, which is also about the flood, by the way. And in Second Baruch, chapter 6, regarding the destruction of the temple. Those are just some examples. The purpose of this interlude that we find in Genesis is to secure God's people, Noah and his righteous family before the catastrophe begins in earnest. And in the same pattern we see in Revelation an interlude for the purpose of God securing his people, especially the 144,000 who are said to be sealed, but also the countless millions of believers of all peoples and languages before the God-ordained catastrophes began in earnest. We also discussed the identity of the 144,000 believers who would be sealed for God and thus protected in some way. And being sealed means to receive a mark of ownership. So these 144,000 are being protected either from physical harm or spiritual harm or perhaps both. At this point in our study, that's not, not yet clear. Now, while what I'm about to tell you is new information and not part of the review, it is meant to point out something important. Although the entire book of Revelation is about the end times, God's wrath as part of his plan of redemption, the issue of personal salvation is not to be found except in chapter 7 where we read about the saved martyrs 
under the heavenly altar. The 144,000 sealed believers and then the countless millions who have been saved. And then also in chapters 12, 14, 19, and 21 we see issues of salvation. Thus the theme of a remnant that is delivered from God's wrath, saved people, that we find in the story of Noah is depicted similarly in Revelation. Only a remnant is saved through trust in Christ. We find that remnant identified in chapter 7. Now interestingly, neither is repentance nor turning from sin a significant topic outside of the seven letters to the churches of Asia. Once we enter the final phase of the end times, starting with the sealed judgments of chapter 6, repentance for the purpose of salvation is dealt with only by implication. No mention of repentance is found in the opening of the first six seals. Even as the global destruction increases and gets more horrific in chapter 9 where the trumpet judgments are announced and then God's wrath is further heightened and then in chapter 16 with the bowl judgments, there is only stupefied wonder by John about why the people on earth can't see or can't admit that they are suffering from God's judgment. And also why, since this is self-evident, that they will not turn from their sins as a logical response. Instead, they only blaspheme God all the more and increase their levels of sin and evil. Revelation 9, 20 and 21. The rest of mankind, those who were not killed by these plagues, even then did not turn from what they had made with their own hands. They did not stop worshipping demons, idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which can't see or hear or walk. Nor did they turn from their murdering, from their involvement with the occult and with drugs, their sexual immorality or their stealing. Revelation 16, 9-11 People were burned by the intense heat, yet they cursed the name of God who had the authority over these plagues instead of turning from their sins to give Him glory. The fifth one poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom grew dark. People gnawed on their tongues from pain, yet they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores. They did not turn from their sinful deeds. What does this mean for us? What does this mean? I've often been asked, what happens to believers who come to salvation only after the rapture? What happens to them? Those who resisted the gospel until those biblical prophecies that explained what was going to happen happened. What we will find 
is that the book of Revelation is not terribly concerned about them. No doubt a significant number of people will see what occurs and they will change their minds. But for them it will be too late to avoid the wrath of God that is now going to be poured out indiscriminately upon all humans including those who come to faith after the rapture. Picture it this way. It could not have been otherwise that upon the deluge beginning and those on Noah's ark beginning to bob around on the the ever-rising waters that thousands of people suddenly realized what evil they had done and pled with God to have mercy upon them. But it was too late. Their drowning was now certain regardless of their newfound enlightenment. So it may be for those who repent and come to Christ after the rapture. Now, while they will receive the mercy of eternal life, they will not receive the mercy of deliverance from these earthly torments that are being thrown down from heaven. Christian Bible scholars are nearly unanimous in believing that the New Testament implies that even the eternal status of raptured believers and those who died before them will be different and higher and more privileged than those who came to believe after the rapture. So the conclusion is that while there is hope for those who remain pagan, and through the rapture and only believe afterward. Their hope is not the same as for those who believed beforehand. Now while I cannot say that this is the case for certain, it is indeed how I see it. Well the identity of this 144,000 in chapter 7 is controversial mainly because various Bible commentators cannot decide if, as specifically written down, these are indeed 144,000 saved Israelites from the 12 tribes of Israel, or whether their tribal identification is merely symbolic and instead it means to indicate the entire Gentile church. As with pre-tribulation dispensationalism, the only rationale for assuming that the 144,000 represent the Gentile church is in order to uphold this rather new man-made church doctrine. Pre-tribulation dispensationalism inherently embraces replacement theology. A doctrine that says that God has replaced Israel with the Gentile church. Such that all the blessings promised to Israel now are transferred to the church, but all the curses threatened against Israel remain with Israel. 
the scriptural evidence is overwhelming that the 144,000 who are sealed by a mark on their foreheads are Israelites. First is those undisputed words of the passage itself. Second is because even the individual Israelite tribes from which the 144,000 come are identified by tribe, name by name. See, that's not how biblical symbolism works. So there's no evidence for symbolism in that. Very likely, the basis for the sealing of the 144,000 Israelites in Revelations taken from the Ezekiel prophecy of Ezekiel 9. Ezekiel 9, 4-6. Adonai said to him, Go throughout the city, throughout all Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who are sighing and crying over all the disgusting practices that are being committed in it. And to the others, I heard him say, go through the city after him and strike. Don't let your eye spare. Have no pity. Kill old men, young men, girls, little children, women. Slaughter them all. But do not go near anyone with the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. That said, the listing of the particular Israelite tribes is kind of problematic to a degree. See, the tribes of Dan and Ephraim are left out of the list. While the tribes of Joseph and Levi are added back in. Now, why this is, we're not informed. What we do know, however, is that the composition of the list of tribes of Israel has changed a few times over history. Originally there were 12. Then down in Egypt that number increased to 14. Then just before Jacob's death that number decreased to 13. Then out in the wilderness the number returned to 12. But it was a slightly different 12 than the original 12. Now in Revelation it's still 12. But the list of which tribes are included in the 12 has once again changed. Some biblical scholars and teachers try to imagine a reason why Ephraim and Levi were removed, even though the scripture, uh, or rather, uh, put back in, even though Holy Scripture doesn't give us a reason, while others owe this error by John, to be by John, or maybe it's a later scribal error. However, the earliest Greek New Testament manuscripts that we have do uphold this particular list, just as we find them in our Bibles. So it's my conclusion that the list is correct. But the reason for this change, this particular group of 12 tribes, that's a mystery. So it's best for us to simply accept it as we find it, and in time, the unfolding of redemption history will make the reason for the list as it stands clear to us.
Let's continue with Revelation 7 by rereading the remainder of the chapter beginning at verse 9. Revelation chapter 7 starting at verse 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're on page 1539. 1539. After this, I looked... And there before me was a huge crowd, too large for anyone to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language. They were standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were dressed in white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. And they shouted, Victory to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living beings, and they fell face down before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders asked me, These people dressed in white robes, who are they? Where'd they come from? Sir, I answered, you know. And then he told me, These are the people who have come out of the great persecution. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. That is why they are before God's throne. Day and night they serve Him in His temple. And the one who sits on the throne will put His Shekinah upon them. They will never again be hungry, never again be thirsty. The sun will not beat down on them, nor will any burning heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them, will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Verse 9 begins with, after this. After this. Either means that verse 9 begins another and a separate vision, or that it begins a different theme within the same vision than what was written in verses 1 through 8. However, Pre-tribulation dispensationalists generally say that what begins in verse 9 is but a continuation of verses 1 through 8 with the purpose of further identifying the 144,000. This verse explains that the crowd that John sees is too enormous to be counted but that they consist of people from every nation, tribe, and language. I'm going to quote extensively from Beale, who makes the case for the pre-tribulation dispensationalist doctrinal viewpoint. He says this, Whereas verses 1 through 8 have portrayed the church in its symbolic significance as true Israel, In verses 9 through 17, John receives a glimpse of its actual dimensions. They are said to be a certain number of people because God has determined exactly who will receive his redemptive seal and only he knows the precise number of his true servants. This second picture in verses 9 through 17 understands the same host now from the viewpoint of their actual vast number. Although they are a saved remnant, they are also those who have been gathered from all over the face of the earth and have lived throughout the era of the church age. Therefore, they are a multitudinous throng. 
In my opinion, Beale's interpretation is just straightforward allegory. That is, for him, all in this passage is symbolic. Therefore, it shouldn't be taken in its plain meaning. And by the way, I doubt Beale would argue with my labeling his interpretation as allegory because that has become a generally acceptable method of Bible interpretation in the academic world, especially for the New Testament. And that is at least partly because allegory is the method that is required in order to uphold the pre-tribulation doctrine or some of the other rival doctrines. However, if we take the words of verses 4 through 8 as literal, then clearly the precisely numbered group of 144,000 that is said to be Israelites from 12 named tribes (laughs) must be a different a separate group from the generic vast horde of people from every nation, tribe, and language spoken of in verse 9. They can't be the same. Taken literally, the first group is speaking of Hebrews. The second group is speaking of Gentiles. In both cases, these are saved believers. That's the commonality between them. Now the saved people, speaking of their souls or spirits at this point, were in heaven standing before the throne of God and in front of the Lamb. Now I'm going to add a, I'm going to add a brief parenthesis that we need to constantly keep in mind. John describes two distinctive divine individuals in his vision. He calls them such. There's the one, capital O, the one sitting on the throne, and there is the Lamb. Two. God sits on the throne, the Lamb stands before him. This is consistent throughout John's visions. It continues to place the one on the throne, God the Father, as preeminent to the Lamb. The consistency of the vision matches the consistency of the Holy Scriptures in the same regard. But what doesn't match are man-made church doctrines, such as the co-equal Trinity doctrine. The countless believers from every people group on earth are dressed in white robes and they're said to be holding palm branches in their hands. The white robes mean absolute ritual purity. The palm branches relate most likely to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 relates to Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. The pertinent verses from Psalm 118 are, This is the day Adonai has made, a day for us to rejoice and be glad. Please, Adonai, save us. Please, Adonai, rescue us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. We bless you from the house of Adonai. 
Adonai is God. He gives us light. Join in the pilgrim festival with branches all the way to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I thank you. You are my God and I exalt you. Give thanks to Adonai for he is good for his grace continues forever. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. Yeah. It's my opinion that the messianic prophetic nature of the feast of Sukkot is exactly what's being played out here in John's vision. As the palm branches, we are told, are placed at the altar in the temple and as they are central to the Sukkot ritual. That is, the seven named biblical feasts in the Torah are without doubt prophetic of the redemptive works of Messiah. The first four of these prophetic biblical feasts have already been fulfilled. Pesach, Passover, was the day when Yeshua paid the price for our sins through his blood spilled on the cross. Matzah, unleavened bread, was the day when Yeshua's sinless body was placed into the rocky tomb. Bechrim, first fruits, that was the day when Yeshua rose from the dead. And Shavuot, Pentecost, that was the day the Holy Spirit came to indwell men. They've all been fulfilled. Three of the feasts remain to be fulfilled. Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the final one, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So unless other evidence is made available to me, I can find no other explanation for the scene that we find with these palm branches in Revelation 9-7. Then this is the moment of the fulfilled, prophesied promise of that biblical feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 10, The millions of believers in heaven shout victory to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God the Father and God the Son are praised separately. But what victory is being praised? It is the victory of the Lamb being able to open the seals and therefore to begin this process of judgment that brings to fruition God's will to redeem the earth from Satan. But it is also crediting God and the Lamb with the victory of believers over sin and evil in our lives. The overcomer's victory is really God's victory. And here that reality is being acknowledged by praising God for it. So the victory is twofold. First it is the victory of believers to persevere in our faith so that we may have eternal life. Second, it is the victory of God to restore a fallen world such that our eternal life will be in a place in which sin and evil are eradicated once and for all. And just as the souls 
of the human believers worship God. So now, starting in verse 11, do we see the millions of angels surrounding the inner circle of the throne? They fall down in worship. First by saying amen to what the believers have just shouted. And then they add their own praise. A praise that acknowledges God's unapproachable glory and wisdom and power that is from everlasting to everlasting. And verse 13 then goes into further depth about who the millions of believers dressed in white are from verse 9. One of the 24 elders asks John if he understands who they are. John says, I don't know. You know. And the elder tells him, these are the people who have come out of the great tribulation. Now I have mentioned on a few occasions that neither Revelation nor any New Testament book ever speaks of the named events of the tribulation or of the great tribulation. Yet the pre-tribulation timeline relies on the existence of these two named events. And their argument seems to gain some credibility with the words, the great tribulation that we find in this verse. Indeed, the Greek word ton, the, is there. However, by no means does it make the great tribulation a particular named event. If I said to you, that these saints came out of the great chaos that currently haunts American politics and society, would you think that a particular event was spoken of? Or would you think of a general time when the chaos was greater than other chaotic times? When something is a proper name in English, we capitalize those words. In the King James Version, and in most of the other major reliable Bible translations, they do not capitalize the term Great Tribulation because they acknowledge that this is pointing to an unspecified time, not to a specified event. The complete Jewish Bible is in error to capitalize it. So, all we are to take from this is that these believers in white robes came to heaven taken out of a period of great tribulation. John's vision in this regard is a direct allusion to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, probably uh, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 1. When that time comes, Michael the great prince who champions your people will stand up and there will be a time of distress unparalleled between the time they became a nation and that moment. At that time your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book. The only other place outside of Revelation that a similar term as Great Tribulation is found is in the book of Matthew. Matthew 24. The complete Jewish Bible translates it this way. In verse 21 
of Matthew 24. For there will be trouble then worse than there has ever been from the beginning of the world until now and there will be nothing like it again. However, most other Bible versions translate it this way. For then there shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. So while Darby's insistence of a specified event called the Great Tribulation, what we have in all three of these passages is the mention of a global societal condition of upheaval that continues for an unspecified time that involves open persecution of believers and of nearly unrestrained human evil perpetrated upon other humans which is beyond anything that has ever happened in human history. Verse 14 concludes by saying that these folks who have washed their robes have made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Now think about those words. Clearly this is a metaphoric saying that involves an irony. The irony is that these believers are wearing robes of brilliant white, but they accomplish this by washing their robes in blood. Obviously, blood stains. Blood would have turned their robes red. White robes means absolute purity. So in both testaments of the Bible, to wash garments means to purify. And it is often associated with immersion, the Christians call baptism. However, term, the term, the blood of the Lamb, that term, refers to the atoning effect that Christ's death on the cross causes on the one who believes and trusts in Him. So the term, the blood of the Lamb, is an expression it's an expression that means that the atonement that the Yeshua provides is perfect. Thus, by washing our robes in the atonement that Christ provides, the total and absolute purity that He possesses is also invested in us. So the question then is, does this refer to people who died during that great persecution and then their souls went to heaven? Or does this refer to people who were taken alive, delivered from being killed, delivered from the time of that great persecution? So-called mid-tribulation believers think this is referring to a rapture of believers that occurs at the midpoint of a seven year period of tribulation. The first three and a half years are named the tribulation. The second three and a half years are named the great tribulation. So the doctrinal theory is that while all believers will suffer some persecution, some tribulation, for a three and a half year period, they will not suffer great persecution for the following three and a half year period because just before the period of greatly increased persecution begins believers will be whisked away to heaven. 
So the pre-tribulation doctrine folks see it that before any tribulation starts, believers are raptured away. Mid-tribulation doctrine folks see it that before the worst part of tribulation starts, believers will be raptured away. In my opinion, it, it is always a value to see what the early church fathers have to say about such matters since they are so many centuries closer to when these words were written than we are. Well, Primasius of Hadramentum, which is in northern Africa, had some very interesting comments on this passage of Revelation because he leans heavily on the Revelation commentary of Tychonius. And sadly, that commentary has been lost to history, so all we have are snippets of it that are provided by later church fathers. While Primatius lived during the mid-500s AD, Tychonius lived two centuries earlier. Now I'm going to quote extensively from Primatius' commentary on the Apocalypse regarding Revelation 7, 13 through 14 because the question of the circumstances that, that, that he thought brought these believers out of the Great Tribulation matter. Those believers just might be us <laughs> who are living today. I also happen to think that Primatius, who was a highly regarded bishop in his day, nailed it. So I'd like you to listen carefully to what he has to say, please. This is a quote. When it says that a number of the faithful had come out of the Great Tribulation, what else is indicated except what we read elsewhere? Through many tribulations we must enter the Kingdom of God. That's Acts 14.22 Therefore the Apostle Paul also said, Brothers, let us not grow weary, for in due time we shall reap. Galatians 6.9 It is through the endurance of struggles that the number of faithful are sifted out. Just as by the weight of the press, oil is prepared with diligent care. And grain that is to be stored in a barn is collected through a threshing machine. That they wash their robes in the blood of the ram, lamb reveals their reward. So that the labor of the aforementioned struggle might be endured with equanimity. And he rightly adds that they made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. It is though he said that the robes that some had uh, the robes that some had befouled after the grace of baptism through neglect, ignorance, or contempt, these he made white in the blood of the Lamb, that is, in the grace of Christ, or perhaps even in undergoing martyrdom. This reward is to be assigned especially to those in the church who have spilled their blood for Christ and have returned the robe of baptism with a greater brilliance by a better service of blood. But if this grace is to refer to all the faithful generally, we must finally conclude that if 
anyone is cleansed by the fount of the Lord, is fed by his flesh, is inflamed by the call of the Spirit, he is in this manner made white as snow. For these are those who have proven to be martyrs before God by their inner character, even though they may not be martyrs by way of public act. So Primasius is saying that there's no need for debate here or to have some strong, rigid viewpoint one way or the other. When Revelation 7.13 speaks about all those who've come out of the Great Tribulation, it's a generality. It's a generality that means all of those who have died and gone to heaven for whatever reason. They could be martyrs killed for their faith. They could be folks who held some small amount of faith and had fallen so far away from God and yet because of tribulation they returned to Him. They could be those who merely lived very godly lives. Served God in any number of ways during this time of great tribulation. Then maybe they died of disease or old age. But while some of these believers might receive greater rewards in heaven than others because of the level of faith that they displayed, the meaning of this passage in Revelation is not to identify a specific circumstance, such as being martyred, to define the group. I also want to add the issue of rapture. You'll notice Primasius doesn't even consider the rapture as a possibility. So there's nothing here that speaks of the rapture in any definitive way. Rather, the event of the rapture has to be superimposed into the scriptures by modern theologians, rather intrusively, in order to say that those being spoken of arrived in heaven and received their white robes by means of rapture. I'm going to say it in a different way. Rapture is the mechanisms as the mechanism for getting these saints into heaven out of this great tribulation only works if there is already a predetermined doctrine for when the rapture must occur. We'll finish up chapter 7, get into chapter 8 next time.